In, in December, the beginning of December, we had a wonderful time away. We went to the Drakensberg. How many of you went to the Berg this holiday? So I'm sure there's quite a few of you, okay? The most beautiful place in South Africa, as far as I'm concerned. Um, I love it when we go to the Berg. I feel like my heart is about to explode with beauty and wonder at what is around me. And for the first time, actually, in many years, we decided to take a hike. Um, because finally, Stella's at the age where we won't have to actually carry her all the way. <laughs> so, so it seemed like it would be vaguely possible. So we got off to a great start. We started this hike and we went with the Elsners and um, we started off on, on the hike and like literally five minutes into the hike, I see this amazing sight and it's this eagle that comes flying past me with a snake. In its, in its claws. I mean, like Greg is saying, wow, so can we put up that slide? So I thought to make it easy for you, I'd just give you a picture, okay? This isn't my picture, right? So, so there's the eagle and there's the snake, okay? That's what, that's what I saw. So I'm overwhelmed by this amazing sight, so I call the boys back because they're a little bit ahead of me. I say, boys, come and have a look. There's an eagle with a snake. There's an eagle with a snake, and they come running back. And it turns out I shouldn't have quite believed my eyes because what I thought was an eagle with a snake was in fact a crow with a stick. <laughs> so I wasn't, I wasn't quite sure if I should actually share this because I thought if I share this, Greg might actually remove me from the team because my, my, my animal spotting skills are obviously not quite up to scratch. In fact, rather than um, looking for birds in the sky, I should have been looking for an optometrist back in um, Schlanger. <laughs> okay. But I got to think about this because it was really funny at the time. Everyone had a good laugh at me because I made a fool of myself. I'm shouting in the mountains, come and look at the eagle, and it's actually a crow and whatever, whatever. But it got me thinking, how we see things really matters, okay? What we perceive actually affects our behavior because we respond to what we see. I responded with great jubilation and excitement because I perceived an eagle, but that wasn't the truth of the matter. Okay, the way we see the world around us informs the way we think, the way we behave, the amount of anxiety that we have, and all of these things, all right? We are not a blank emotional state that can look at things around us and not respond in some sort of emotional way. We don't operate independent of the perception of the world around us. Sometimes I wish we did. It might be a little bit easier, but we're not created like that. Okay, it informs our behavior, it informs our response. In the same way, the way we perceive what's happening in the world around us is going to inform what's going on inside of our hearts, okay. right? And we know we haven't come off the back of a great, fantastic two years, okay? We don't even need to, we don't even need to say that. And so the question that we're going to be asking today <laughs> is what is your pov? right, for 2022. Now, if you don't know what a, a POV is, you don't have to worry, because um, if you are anything after the age of 35, you probably won't know what a POV or a POV is or whatever. And I discovered what this phrase meant recently because I decided it was about time that I get onto TikTok, <laughs> get a little bit hip and updated, because now I've got teenagers, I need to know what's going on. And I kept seeing this thing, POV, POV, what the hell is POV? So like any good Post-millennial, I googled it, <laughs> and it stands for point of view, okay? 
Hi, everyone. Everyone who's over 35 is like, ah, <laughs> okay. <laughs> right, what is your point of view for 2022? All right. What am I seeing when I look at the world around me? You see, we as humans have an inbuilt proclivity towards negativity, okay? And there's actually a very good reason for this, right? Because back in our cave-dwelling days, and my teenagers actually think that I lived in the cave-dwelling days, but I won't, I'm not that old yet. In the cave-dwelling days, uh, we absolutely needed to pay attention to anything negative in our environment because it could potentially be life-threatening. In other words, it could actually kill you, right? So, so when you looked at that beautiful river and you thought, oh, let me take a swim in the sun, if you just looked at the river and the sunshine and you put your feet in and you didn't observe the crocodiles, your swim wasn't going to be of a very long duration, okay? This is why we are created the way we are created. We have to pay attention to something which could be potentially harmful to us. And so we have this inbuilt psychological mechanism, right, to protect and preserve our lives. And the media industry understands this extremely well, right, extremely well. Um, and this is not a new thing. Um, did you know that even in the 1800s, the newspapers were doing actually exactly what newspaper, well, we don't have newspapers so much these days anymore, all our online media, very much the same thing. In fact, in 1830, um, this guy started a business and he called it uh, the Penny Press. <laughs> the penny press. No. So what happened was um, newspapers were around, okay, um, I think they cost about six pennies each, but for your average working guy, he couldn't really afford to buy a newspaper every day of the week or even maybe once a week because it took too much out of his wages. And so this guy started the penny press, it was literally one sheet of paper and on it was printed like all the most sensational stories with very loose journalistic principles around it and all the gossip and all of that stuff and it only cost one penny, that's why it was called the penny press. In fact, in the 1830s, they ran an article that actually propelled this thing into huge popularity and the article was about how scientists had found life on the moon. <laughs> Can you believe it? In 1830, and not much has changed. What has changed, however, is our exposure to the media, right? And the length of time we are exposed to the media. So while somebody might have picked up the penny press, read all the gossip, whatever, they'd put it down, discuss it with their mates, and that would be it. That would be the end of that, would be the end of that right? But in our day and age, we have had a massive increase of our exposure to the media, right? And I'm not just talking about social media. So here is a graph, right? Um, I felt very clever when I found this. Um, this graph, it, it's an American thing, right? But if you own a smartphone or you are anything like that, which most of us are, we're probably following pretty much on the same trend. So if you look at 2008, okay? The average daily hours spent by a person um, accessing digital media is about just under three hours a day. In the matter of 10 years, and I can guarantee you this number is probably even higher now because of COVID and everyone's gone online, we are now spending on average more than six hours a day exposed to what the media tells us. And that's a little bit of a frightening statistic. I mean, you sleep for six to eight hours, hopefully, Okay, and so imagine six hours of your day where you are just constantly being fed a point of view that may not necessarily line up with the kingdom. A staggering 90% of news is negative, and that's a fact, 90%, because they understand 
that we have an inbuilt proclivity towards negative news, and therefore when we see something negative, when the headline grabs us, that's the thing we're gonna click on, and then all the adverts come with that, and that's how they actually make their money. They make their money off negativity. Think about last year, what are the things that come to mind? I don't even wanna say the C word, <laughs> I'm so sick of it. <laughs> okay, the C word, okay, COVID. Uh, what about uh, climate crisis? right? The world is going to end. Uh, the next generation, unless we do something now, is not going to survive until next year. And they're not going to have children. It's going to be an absolute disaster. What about economic crisis? What about riots? We didn't even need the media for that. <laughs> we just experienced it. <laughs> okay, all these things have been feeding into our point of view, and you can't uh, underestimate the effect that it has on what's going on inside. Uh, I read something, or I heard something the other day, which was actually staggering. This is what is never reported. I didn't know that from the 1800s, you know in the 1800s, 80% of the world was in abject poverty. 80%. Even up until 1970, it was about 30% of the world in abject poverty. But you know that up until today, and this is even including um, the effects of COVID and that sort of thing, less than 10% of the world is in abject poverty. Did you know that? They will never report that. In fact, every second they say 0.9 of a person leaves abject poverty. That is how the world is actually progressing. And so what point of view are we being fed and what are we gonna do with this? How do we as followers of Christ perceive the world around us in a way that leads us into peaceful and a victorious mindset? Sorry, I just got to have some water. Because when you have a victorious mindset, you are open to creativity. When you are feeling defeated, afraid, overwhelmed, I promise you, you won't have any new ideas. In fact, anything you do is going to be done out of fear because you're afraid of the future. And anything that you do out of fear is not going to be good for you. <clears throat> so we're going to turn to a bit of scripture and we're going to look at someone who understood this principle very well. And the best person that we can look at is the Apostle Paul. Okay, Paul went through quite a bit in his life. I would say he probably had a bit more to complain about than, than we actually do in our current day and age. So he wrote a letter to the Philippians. And while he, he wrote this letter to the Philippians, he was actually in jail, right? He was imprisoned in Rome. We don't know which jail he was in, but we know that he was in jail in Rome. And Philippians 4 verses 8, right, says... Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, praiseworthy think about these things. Now, it's so easy to read over the sentence, especially like us, if you know it very well. I mean, how many times have you heard this scripture? I've heard it many, many times. And we can kind of ignore the context that it was written in, as well as the impact that it can have on our lives if, if we actually begin to employ this as a spiritual practice. We don't know which prison Paul was in, but you can be sure that he wasn't getting his linen changed every other day. You can be sure it was rather unpleasant. 
In fact, in those days, people weren't put into prison for years and years and years just to sit out a, a sentence of 20 years for whatever you did, theft or whatever, because actually you will die if you, if you left in there more than a year or so. You were put in there for a fairly short period of time just awaiting trial. And likelihood is if you were found guilty, you were going to be executed. And Paul knew this very well. In fact, in Philippians, when you read what he writes, you can hear he's very well aware that he could possibly die very soon. He, he writes about the struggle between wanting to be here, wanting to be with the church, but at the same time wanting to be with Jesus because this body, it's just a tent and all of those kind of things because it's obviously in his mind at the time. One of the prisons that Paul was in at one stage, we don't know which stage, was called the Marmotine Prison. And there was a Roman historian uh, called Sallust who describes this prison and he says, the neglect, the darkness, and the stench gave it a hideous and a terrifying appearance. In fact, Paul was probably imprisoned in one of the lower chambers, so he probably hardly saw light or anything like that. And yet in the middle of this, he writes... Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is excellent, whatever is praiseworthy, think about such things. This isn't just a little trivial piece of positive affirmations to get you through your day. This is a spiritual practice that can change the atmosphere of your heart. And when the atmosphere of your heart is changed, the atmosphere of your family is changed. When the atmosphere of your family is changed, the atmosphere of your community is changed. When the atmosphere of your community is changed, the atmosphere of your country is changed. When the atmosphere of a country is changed, the atmosphere of the world begins to change. Can you see how powerful such small, seemingly small things can be? If you think it's just about trying to block off negative things and say, okay, you know what, well, I'm just uh, fine then, I'm just not going to read the news, and I'm just going to uh, look at kittens and puppies on my Instagram feed. Uh, that's, that's not what he's talking about. Unfortunately, it's not quite so simple. So when he uses the word think, right, he says, think on these things. He uses a Greek word, and it's called logizomai. Apologies to the Greeks in our church. I don't know if I'm saying that correctly, but the way I see it, it sounds good, it sounds intelligent, it sounds like it should be. Okay, logizomai. Okay, the word logizomai means to dwell upon, right? Not just think good thoughts, it means to dwell upon, but more than that, it means to weigh it up and to assign value to something, all right? So you assign value to the good, you assign value to truth. You assign value to the things which are positive, the things which God has given you, right? So what he's describing here is a process of when you find yourself in this place of darkness, when you find yourself in, in this difficulty, you allow the Holy Spirit or you ask the Holy Spirit to come alongside of you and remind you the truth of his promises, remind you the good gifts that he's given you in Christ, remind you of the spiritual inheritance you have and then to assign more value to that than what you're assigning to what the media is feeding you. You get it? It's a process whereby you can wrestle and struggle with your flesh and blood and your human emotions because it's absolutely impossible just to cut it off. Because that's the one thing that frustrates me, especially as evangelical Christians. We love to enter into a little bit of denialism, 
right? <laughs> so we just say, oh, well, I'm just going to quote scripture, and I'm just going to quote scripture, and we just quote scripture, and we, we carry on, and we pretend it doesn't exist. But in the meantime, inside, we've got this like awful wrestling going on. And so it's actually a process of saying, you know what, God, I'm wrestling with this thing. I'm wrestling with what's happening in the world. I'm wrestling with the fact that I've lost my job or my income's de- decreased. I'm wrestling the, with the fact that my kids are now struggling at school because of all the things they've, they've missed out. But I'm not going to assign a whole lot of value to that. I'm going to take the value that is in here and I'm going to assign it to your promises. And I'm going to assign it to what you say over me and what you say over my life. Assign value to the truth that Christ is glorified in you, that his immeasurable grace works within you to the good of all things, that no matter what you go through, God is in you. Abraham Heschel is a, was a leading uh, Jewish theologian of the 20th century, and he says the following, so what distinguishes the righteous from the wicked? The wicked are trapped by material things that bring them pleasure. But the righteous, they are enchanted by the mystery of divine inherent things. Their wonder sustains their life. And I just love that word enchanted by the mystery of the spiritual things. Allow God to begin to enchant your heart again with what he has given us through Christ Jesus. It's also interesting to me that Paul says, whatever is true, think on these things. That was the, that's the first thing he puts in that sentence, whatever is true. And this is actually quite a difficult one, especially in today's day and age. So what is true? <laughs> what is true? <laughs> is the media telling you the truth? I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, the earth is flat. No, it's not. It's round. Vaccines are good for you. No, they're not. They're terrible for you. You're going to die. Uh, this, you, I mean, the, the list goes on and on and on. Like, so what is true? What do we think on? What do, what do we assign truth and value to? How do we know what the truth is? What side do we pick? And I was thinking about this, and I thought, you know, it's actually okay. It's actually okay to not be entirely certain on the truth of a certain matter, okay? There's some things God doesn't tell us about in Scripture. He didn't talk about vaccines. <laughs> it would have been nice if he did. It would have been very convenient because it would be easier, but there's certain things that are just not there. And it's actually okay to be okay with that. Because what you do is you say, God, this thing I'm, I'm in a bit of a conflict about. I hear this one's advice. I go to a person I trust. I listen to their advice. So what am I going to do? Well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to assign a little bit less value to that issue which I'm trying to decide on. Okay, I'm not going to spend my life fighting people on the internet and reading a million conspiracy theories or what, scientific articles or whatever it is. I'm going to assign a little bit less value to that thing, pay a little bit less attention, and spend more time assigning value to the things that I absolutely know are true. Spend time and ask Holy Spirit, and then do what you feel comfortable with. Because let me tell you, Jesus is not going to judge you one day when you get to heaven on which side of the vaccine fence you were on. I promise you that now. I promise you, he's not going to say, geez, you know what, you let me down. You let the church down. You let your community down because you did or you didn't. And I know some people won't want to hear that because we want to judge everyone around us for the decisions that they're making. And everybody's in the state of not really quite knowing what the truth is. So rather than giving that thing a whole lot of attention, what I'm going to assign value in is what I know to be true. And I know it to be true that though the mountains 
be shaken and the hills be removed. Yet my unfailing love and kindness for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed from you, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. Isaiah 54 verse 10. While I might not know the truth on a various issue, I know it to be true that we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Ephesians 2 verses 10. While I might not understand everything that's going on, I know it to be true that God works all things for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Romans 8 verse 28. I also know it to be true that this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone and a new life has begun. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17. And I know it to be true that despite all of these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. Romans 8 verse 37. And the list goes on and on and on and on and on. What are we assigning our time to? What are we assigning our value to? That is the question we are going to ask. On what other foundation, other than the gospel of Jesus Christ, are we going to build our hope for 2022? On what other foundation are we going to see the world through? What other lenses are we going to be looking at? Because there's always a lens. You're always looking through something. And the question is, what are we looking through? When we allow our minds and our thoughts to be consumed with crisis after crisis after crisis, we spend less and less time looking at Jesus. And Jesus, we know, is all truth, right? If you're a bit confused about what truth is, we know that Jesus is all truth. I am the truth. I am the way. I am the life. You know that you've been made in the image of God, right? We all believe it, or we say we believe it. And when you spend time looking at Jesus, it's actually like looking at a mirror, right? But in the mirror, you don't see what you look like, right? You see Jesus reflected back at you, okay? And that means you see what you were created to be and who you were created to be, and the truth about what you were created to be, the more time you spend looking at Jesus, and the more time you spend looking into this mirror of Jesus who reflects back to you what you were created to be, the more you begin to change, and the more you begin to become like that image that you're looking at. It's all in Scripture, 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18, go and read it. Ask God for revelation. The more time we spend looking into that mirror, the more we are transformed. Because the reality is we get transformed into the things that we are looking at the most. And that's a frightening thought. When we allow the world around us and the crises around us to hold more weight than Jesus, we look into that mirror. We look into that mirror and we look into that mirror six hours a day, seven hours a day, eight hours a day. And what is it feeding back to us? And what do we become as a result of that? It begins to re-identify God when we look into a different mirror. Because the mirror that we're supposed to be looking in is not the mirror that we're looking in. And we begin to look into another mirror and it re-identifies who God is to us. And we put God through that filter and suddenly you actually... What are you worshiping? That's the very definition of an idol. It's something that you've assigned such value to other that takes the place of God and where God should be. 
And this is not to condemn you. This is just to get us to like say, hey, where are we? What are we doing? What is our inheritance? Where should we be focusing our gaze? If I gaze too long into that mirror, it will inform my anxiety. My anxiety will grow. And I just, I loved what you shared this morning about anxiety. And I just felt, because I know I've struggled with it, especially leading up to the end of the year. It's been busy and scary and crazy and everyone's anxious and and if you just sit there and allow it to inform the anxiety, it grows and it grows and it grows. And I really believe Holy Spirit wants to do something in our hearts this morning. And he wants to recalibrate us. And say, Jesus, Jesus, you are the way. You are the truth. You are life. I assign all value to you. All these other things that are going on, though some of it may be true, some of it may not be true. Whatever's going on, I choose to turn my gaze that beautiful song that says, O oh soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness do you see. There is a light for look at the Savior, a life that's more abundant and free. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face because the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. Will you stand with me?